think I mentioned this uh, The series is called The Cry of the Heart, or Cries of the Heart, something like that. I can't remember what it is. And uh, this week we've got two cries of the heart that take place in the course of this psalm. Um, so let's keep that in mind as we, as we read this together. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word, that it is indeed a lamp unto our eyes and a light unto our path. And so uh, light up the way for us this morning. We need the truth. We need wisdom. We need guidance. Grant them to us through the grace of Jesus Christ, who is the living word and the light of the world. Amen. You would have to have been living under a rock this week not to know that David Bowie died. Now, for many of you, it's like, so what? David Bowie? Don't care. Okay? I was a fairly big Bowie fan when I was in high school and early college, and a lot of that changed after I became a Christian. Um, he was a fascinating person, actually, in many ways. And uh, his music, in many ways, was innovative. He seemed to uh, be able to pull a few other things together that other people were doing and bring them to a brand new kind of place and popularize them. Um, he wore a number of personas, in a sense, opening the door for you too, in that respect, when, uh, when Bono finally decided that he didn't want to sing in the first person anymore. His was a life that was very strange in many ways. He had tried nearly every religion. If you listen to his music, what you see is that he leaned towards atheism and he drank deeply of nihilism, the idea that there is nothing, that there is no plan, there is no hope, that uh, we, in a sense, create our own plan, our own power, our own purpose for life. And I think that's in very many ways reflected in his music as well as his lifestyle. And in a sense, I think of David Bowie when I think of the first verse of this psalm. The big idea this morning is that Jesus is God's salvation from a dangerous world of dangerous people. I've done a lot of playing with my outline this morning, so be aware. Everything has changed. 
<laughs> Jesus is God's salvation from a dangerous world of dangerous people. And as we think about this psalm, uh, one of the things we struggle with, I think, is the time frame. To what is King David referring and there are theories that are at work uh, about when this really kind of takes place, what it's looking at. And the, the first is um, that he's looking towards the past primarily. And the reason for this is that there's a lot of uh, carryover from what we see in Genesis 6 and then what we also see in Exodus, the whole Exodus event. There's a lot of commonality of terms and language that's going on here. And so the idea would be that David is pulling from the past to possibly deal with the present. Okay. There are other commentators such as John Calvin who thinks that he's dealing primarily with the present and that this is really about um, the problems going on during most likely Saul's reign as king before David himself becomes the king. The third view is that it's dealing with the future, that David here is operating as a prophet and he's looking into the future. You know, God has given him insight into the future. And uh, this kind of heavily relies upon what we see in the NASB, where uh, one phrase that's translated, the fortunes of my people, is translated in the NASB as restore my people, restore the captives. And so you immediately would try to you know, go to, oh, is this dealing with the exile? Is that what's going on here? Okay, I'm going to lay my cards on the table with you. I think it's the past for the purpose of the present. Okay? Let's start with this. Let's start with the notion that fools are dangerous people. We tend to think of the fool like the court jester. Rather innocuous, he makes some statements to point out how the king is wrong, but he's got that silly hat with the bells, and we don't take him seriously, do we? That is not the fool from a biblical perspective, and not the fool used here. We see that the psalm begins with a very bold statement. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool, biblically, is not simply an ignorant person, but is someone who rather is senseless, someone who is closed-minded, someone who pursues sin. He's insensible, so to speak, to guilt. He doesn't feel much guilt. We see this word that is used here in Psalm 1, sorry, 14, verse 1. In Samuel 25, in a particular way, David has come across a man whose name is Nabal, which means fool. It's the word that's used here in Psalm 14. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. And so sometimes we think of people being named appropriately. Why his parents would name him this? Not sure his parents did. Perhaps it's a name he got as he got older. Maybe he was essentially functioning as a nickname because no one would name their child fool. They might think their child is a fool when, they're a ch when they are a children because folly is bound up in the heart of a child. But still, who would name their child fool or folly? 
We see that uh, foolishness is the antithesis of wisdom, that foolishness is the antithesis of the fear of the Lord, for we see in Proverbs 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools, on the other hand, despise wisdom and instruction. And so we see that closed-mindedness aspect of the fool. And so this is not someone who's just not bright. This is someone who uses their intellectual capacities for evil. It sounds almost like get smart here, huh? Um, uses them to pursue all of the wrong things and does not want to hear from another that they might be wrong. And so this person speaks to him or herself in the heart, taking counsel with himself or herself. And this person, therefore, is rejecting the testimony of God and of his word and of the people who are wise around him. And the inner, the result of this inner reasoning is literally no God. And that's the first cry of the heart that we have in this psalm. No God. That there would be no one who would have boundaries that I should not cross, who is meant to tell me who, how I might live, what I might do with myself. It is the cry of the heart that seeks to be free from accountability. And as we think about the music of David Bowie, we see this cry away from accountability. There was a desire to be free from God. A desire, and especially in his earlier years, um, taken up by the personas, to be free from accountability and what he is and what he did. David here lays out this process in, uh, in the rest of verse 1 with this cry of the heart. Know God, and that this, this thinking in the heart then results in corruption, which then results in abominable deeds. It's a bit of a process that unfolds. And so we see John Calvin noting about this, that folly is the root of all wickedness. It all starts with that idea that essentially, I am my own God. I need no other. I, need, I do not need Him to tell me how to live and what to do, what is right, what is wrong. It's interesting that uh, Bowie, in a 1993 interview, years after I stopped listening to you know what he was putting out, says, I felt totally, absolutely alone. And I probably was alone because I pretty much had abandoned God. Interesting that he would say that. He was alone because he had pursued all of the excesses of the rock and roll lifestyle. He had pursued them all, and he ended up addicted and alone. And instead of blaming God, he, kind of, he recognizes, in a sense, that he was the one who ran from God. And he is the one who got himself into that mess. He's the one. Corruption. The character 
is corrupt. The person is corrupt precisely because the image of God is defaced or corrupted. And all of, almost all of us occasionally find ourselves on a computer and something very bad happens if there is a corrupted file. You can't work that file. And so whatever was on that is now lost. It's gone. And so because we are a corrupted image of God, we don't function the way we were intended to function. This corruption finds itself beginning in that idea, that theological idea of original sin, which is that Adam and Eve sinned, And because of their sin and Adam being our federal head, we now are guilty of his sin, but we're also in a state of corruption. And so we have a predisposition towards disobedience, a predisposition towards going our own way. And as if that wasn't enough, we also have the reality that we have been sinned against. And sometimes that continues or furthers, it deepens our corruption. And not only do we have this idea of original sin and being sinned against, we have the reality of sins committed, which deepen and further the corruption of our hearts. This is why sin so easily entangles us. We, we think that we can play with sin, that we can enjoy a little, and it won't really affect us, but it's sort of like, you know, my lousy headphone cords. No matter what I do to those headphones cords, they always get entangled. And I always have to spend, you know, the first five minutes after I get out of the car at the gym, untangling them so I can properly connect them and listen to music while I'm at the gym. Sin just tangles us, wraps itself around us. Uh, That which we thought we could enjoy for a season uh, just works its way into us. And it's because of our corruption. It's hard for us to grasp. Their actions are abominable deeds. We don't often think about them in this way, but the idea is that they are horrifying, they are terrifying in the degree of their wickedness. As we connect this idea of the fool who says in his heart there is no God with the abominable ideas, I can't help but think of of Fyodor Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karasmov. I still need to read that book. But there's that that line that we probably all know, we've all heard a billion times, if there is no God, all things are lawful. Meaning, if there's no God, if there's no objective standard, then anything and anything goes. Because there's no one to tell us what to do. (laughs) That's really what it gets down to. And we see this in the existential uh, ethics of people like Peter Singer. If you haven't heard of Peter Singer, be glad you haven't heard of Peter Singer. Um, he is a, an Ivy League scholar, and his idea is that abortion doesn't go far enough. He thinks that, you know, until children can take care of themselves, then they're free game, so to speak. 
They're not really people yet. And we can do with them what we want. That is horrifying. That is incredibly wicked. And that is where atheism inevitably will lead. Now, there are some atheists who do cling to a Judeo-Christian sort of morality, but they are the exception. It's not sustainable because they're living on a borrowed moral capital. It will not hold together. But it's not just about them. We see in Genesis 6 and Romans 1 that really it's an indictment of rebellious, rebellious humanity. We're all involved in this mess. Years ago, Bishop of Canterbury, William Temple, was approached by a layperson from one of the churches. And this person had a grievance. And the grievance was, why are there so many lousy priests? And Temple said, look what I have to work with. The laity, from where else are the priests going to come? But from other sinners. We're all in this mess together. And so there's a sense in which everybody is a dangerous person. The world is filled with fools. It's filled with dangerous people who throw off all restraint. So secondly, we see in verses 2 through 4 that God sees a world filled with fools as a dangerous place. We have the fool in his heart reasoning with himself, and now we have God looking down from heaven. And you've got to like the imagery that's here. I mean, first off, remember, it's poetry. Okay? God already knows. He's present everywhere, and he knows everything. But what the psalmist is trying to get at is the exalted character of God, that he's above creation, and that he's got to peer down. And that's sort of the idea of, like, say, someone peering down from a tower, peering down the stairs, having to look over. What's that way down there? Because God is so high and exalted and lifted up that he has to peer over in a sense, the banister of heaven to look down upon what's happening on the earth. We see this kind of terminology in a number of places. For instance, Exodus 14. And in the morning, watch the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud look down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic. And so in, in Exodus 14, we see that God is looking down upon the, upon the Egyptians, but he's going to bring his wrath. He's about to act in that looking down. So it's not just God's curious, but God's going to be at work in this. We see in, in uh, the parallel Psalm 53, which is almost identical to Psalm 14, God, in verse 2, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God almost identical to what we have here in verse 2 of this psalm. We see it at the flood, which we saw in Genesis 6, before he tells Noah to build the ark. We see him evaluating and seeing that people's desires were sinful all the time. We see it at the Tower of Babel. God having to come down and investigate, so to speak, what happens. We see this ultimately in Jesus in the Incarnation, 
where instead of the bird's eye view, the exalted view, Jesus comes down and gets the lay of the land, not to investigate, but to act. And so this idea of God looking, God seeing, God caring about what's going on, he's evaluating these things. And part of what he's evaluating is, do they understand? Or do they get it? Do they get life? Do they get that there is a God in heaven who has created everything and who has given us uh, the law that reflects his character, that reflects our design so that we can work beautifully in this world? Or do we live in rebellion against that truth? Are there any who seek after God? Are there any who look earnestly for him or do they just sort of consign that to a small portion of their life, if any portion of their life. We see Paul picking up this on uh, in Athens, Mars Hill in Acts 17. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. Why? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and... Find him. And so there's this whole notion of are people seeking him? Okay? As I meditate and think about this text, I have the idea that verses 3 through 4 should probably have quotation marks around them because I'm convinced that these are his evaluation that God is speaking, that yes, David's a prophet. He's receiving, in addition to looking back uh, upon what happened in the flood and what happened in the Exodus, that he's also, in a sense, as a prophet, party to God's speech by the Holy Spirit. And that three and four are encapsulating his speech, his summary, his evaluation that takes place. They have all turned aside. That idea of turned aside, that verb is a common verb. It can be used for turning around, and it's the one we often see, repent. And this is repent in the bad sense of they've turned away from God, and they've turned toward evil. And notice the universality of this. They have all turned aside. They're not seeking God. They're hiding from God. They're running from God. Why? Because they're sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. What happened after their disobedience in Genesis 3? In addition to putting the loincloths on, or actually the fig leaves on, the loincloths were from God. When they heard God coming, what did they do? They ran and they hid. They didn't run to him and say, I didn't mean to do it, or I did mean to do it, and I didn't, it didn't turn out how I thought it would. <laughs> I did the wrong thing. I made a mistake. Help me. They ran from God in fear. And so instead of looking for God, what people do is tend to run from God, to hide 
from Him. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There's a sense in which we encourage one another's sinful imagination. Because our minds and our hearts have been affected by our fall into sin, and they are corrupt, therefore our imaginations are corrupt, and we think of ways to sin. New ways to sin. This is what we do. I could think of certain children I know, but I'm going to talk about me. I remember one instance, uh, my brother, uh, when he was a teenager, he had those Estes rockets. You know, you stick the engine in them and you put them on the rail and you go side, you hit the ignition button and they go flying off into the air. And then the, then the parachute comes out and you get to walk like two miles through the woods to find the rocket, okay? Well, my brother was done with that. That phase of his life was over. He was moved out of the house and you know what? He left these rockets behind. And so my friend and I thought together, hmm, what would happen if, and see, that's the sinful imagination, what would happen if we hollowed out those rockets? Now, that was not an easy task because everything was packed in there very tightly and everything, you know, so we spent hours Okay, so in order to fulfill this imagination that we had, we spent untold hours with metal devices scraping these cardboard tubes to get the, the, the gunpowder or whatever it was that made these rockets fly out of there. Hmm. What would happen if we put a match in that? <laughs> well, initially nothing. It wasn't until Eric had his face right over the bowl when everything went up. And it was actually a beautiful sight to behold. <laughs> this big flash and this ginormous, this really big mushroom cloud. And of course, the only problem was that Eric's face was in the middle of it. Uh, thankfully, all he got were like some singed hair and eyebrows and eyelid, eye, eyelashes. He didn't get any real serious burns. But that's just an example of kind of what happened. To alone, we wouldn't have done that. Together, we did. And it was stupid. Okay? And we're, we were running away because this was, of course, this was at nighttime at the school down the street from our homes. And someone had to have noticed this gigantic flash of light that took place. And so we're running away just in case someone calls the police. And he can't see. <laughs> so that was amusing in and of itself. So, oh well, he and I both live to adulthood, I think. So if we turn aside and together become corrupt, okay, the sinful imagination. And this is, all this is, is really setting the stage, I think, for what Paul does in Romans 1, okay? He's, he's borrowing and applying what we see right here, not just in Romans 3, but also in Romans 1, with this idea of turning away from God, exchanging the truth for the lie, and then becoming impure, and there, then this, this 
descent into increasing sinfulness. We see at the very last verse of Romans 1 where it ends up giving approval to those who practice sin. Instead of saying, it's wrong, but I, you know, I struggle with this, it's, it's a good thing. It's calling evil good. And so we see this even today. You don't have to look very far to see on, you know, Planned Parenthood website, you know, I'm glad I had an abortion and all of those kinds of t-shirts that they wear. The, the, the reason for the Anglican Episcopal split that we prayed about was because one portion, the, the Episcopal part of the church, had decided that that particular sin wasn't sinful. Called it good when it wasn't. Verse 4 is in a sort of an incredulous statement on the behalf of God or David is that they all lack knowledge and don't call on the Lord. But even worse, he says, they eat up my people as they eat bread. And I think here we see this, this reality of grace emerging for the first time in this psalm because all of the world is basically fools. All of the world has turned away from God and is guilty. All of the universals. But then here's this, my people. This idea of these people who have been saved by grace, who have found favor from God just as Noah did and just as David did. Grace through faith. And those people, God's covenant people, are being eaten by, like bread by the wicked. And we see this throughout history. Egypt was devouring the people of God and they had them as slaves. The time of the judges, various groups would oppress the people of God at various times. The Moabites, the Amalekites, the Canaanites, the Philistines, so forth. We would see it in the future with Assyria and then Babylon devouring God's people like they would eat bread. But it wasn't over because then there was Greece and then there was Rome. It seems that there's never been an end to the group of people who want to devour the people of God. If we look at the 20th century, atheist regimes, this is just in the 20th century, atheist regimes built upon the notion that there is no God have killed anywhere, estimates are between 50 and 100 million of their own citizens Imagine that. That's one, uh, you know, half a million to one million people a year devoured by atheistic governments. Now, that's just the atheistic governments. And many of those people were Christians. And it continues in places like Syria right now. And so God sees that His people live in a dangerous world and that they are surrounded by dangerous people. And so 5 and 7 are the cry, another cry of the heart, the longing for salvation that ultimately is satisfied in Christ 
and Christ alone. There's a remarkable reversal that is afoot in this psalm, just as there were remarkable reversals in the past, and we have promises that there will be remarkable reversals in the future. Okay? The fools end up being in great terror. They're trembling in fear because of the presence of God who appears amongst them. During one interview, David Bowie said, I'm not quite an atheist, and it worries me. He knew he was in trouble. He felt something of that trembling that these fools in the psalm experience. They're trembling because God is with the generation of the righteous, and He is there in order to oppose the plans of the foolish who say there is no God. These people have tried to shame or disappoint the plans of the poor, the defenseless, the ones who lack the ability to defend themselves. They lack social power, political power, economic power. And so the fools are trying to bring their plans to nothing. And what happens is, in irony, God's going to bring the fool's plan to nothing. There is a great ironic reversal that takes place and is talked about here. Because these poor people had a refuge. And their refuge was the Lord. And so they are able to seek shelter from the storm that was coming and God and God alone. It's been a while, I think, since you've heard Lord of the Rings sort of reference. But imagine when they go to the Helm's Deep. They know they cannot defend the kingdom, uh, so they, they depart to the refuge, the citadel of Helm's Deep, because they can defend that. Well, we're not going because we can defend anything. We're going because that's the only safe place, God himself. So, <clears throat> David kind of looks back at history, the, you know, what has already been written in Scripture, in order to gain hope for the present and the future because he was in difficult times. And so we too must look back to see God's dealings and how God's people have been devoured like bread, but how God continually came through for them, continually delivered them and protected them so that we don't lose hope. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the God who helped His people in the past is the God who will help His people now. God, who we see in Second Chronicles 16 saying, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward Him is still alive and still looking and still supporting. It's still happening. The cry of David the psalmist here is, Oh, this is, here's our second cry of the heart, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. He cries out to God for deliverance. For deliverance from 
the dangerous people, deliverance from the dangerous world that he lives in. We see that there is a restoration, a long for restoration of, of the people's fortunes. And we can easily see that their earthly fortunes are meant to reflect and point us to their eternal fortunes. It's not good enough that they have a good life now, but that they are delivered forever from sin and death. And so we see as we look what happens in the rest of the Bible is that Jesus, whose name, of course, means the Lord saves, arose out of Zion. He rose to deliver God's people from the dangerous ones by first being afflicted by the dangerous ones. He was devoured like bread, so to speak. He experienced the plots and plans of wicked men against him so that he could redeem God's people from them. In the weight of glory, C.S. Lewis writes, that in the end, that face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. All men must face God. And so we all need deliverance. We need deliverance from the sin and corruption, that the idea that we talked about of original sin providing corruption for us that's furthered by the ways in which we're sinned against and the ways in which we sin against other people. We need deliverance from that, that tendency that we have to be entangled by sin. We need to be delivered from that. We need to be delivered from the designs of the wicked against God's people. Whether that's at work, whether that's in the neighborhood, wherever that is, we need deliverance from that. We also need deliverance from the wrath of God Himself towards us as sinners. We need Jesus to stand between us and God as the mediator to take that wrath upon Himself that we might be free of it. We need that. This week I read a number of articles about David Bowie. And his life seemed to shift in later years. Perhaps it was because his friends started to die. I'm not sure. At Freddie Mercury's tribute, he shocked everyone because no one expected this. He read the Lord's Prayer. Okay, I don't know what that means. But afterwards he said that I have an undying belief in God's existence. For me, that is unquestionable. And so the man who is mostly an atheist is now recognizing there's a God. It's unquestionable for him. Just before his own death, his wife tweeted, The struggle is real, but so is God. And no one knew what in the world she was talking about because no one knew that he had cancer. The fool who threw off the restraints of God 
experience the consequences of that sinful quest. He sought comfort from some notion of God. I'm not claiming that he was a Christian. Not going there. I have no idea what he believed about God. So I'm not going to make any claims. But I do know that he sought some comfort from a notion of God. Let us not simply seek comfort, but let us seek deliverance and pardon from Jesus who arose from Zion, who was put to death by wicked men to purchase that pardon for people who do abominable things, who were corrupt and not good. If we're honest, we have been that guy or gal. And we tend to live in fear of those people who will do us harm. And so when we struggle with guilt over what we've done or fear over what people might do to us, let us run and cry out to the Deliverer that God has provided. Jesus and only Jesus. Let's pray. Father, Help us to see Jesus in this. Help us to see that He, while He has no part of our corruption, He knows what it's like to be devoured by the wicked. He knows what it's like to be put to shame, and He experienced all of it for us, who are His people. And so, Father, and when we are just torn apart by our guilt, when we're torn apart by our fear, may the Holy Spirit be at work to, to grab us in our eyes that we would see Jesus, that we would see the Deliverer that You have provided, the one mediator between God and man, the Righteous One, Jesus Christ, so that our guilt will be gone and our fear will dissipate. Well, that's not something we can do on our own. Help us by the Spirit to do that. Redirect our eyes so that we aren't overcome, so that we don't despair. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.